Hi there and welcome to Doxadeo Bloemfontein North. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the message. One another and um, this week I was actually reading about uh, just the effects of isolation or loneliness. And so in this one medical article, um, it basically explains that people who are isolated from other people, so if you're experiencing loneliness, so if you're not living life in community, then it, uh, quote, that those people experience adverse health consequences such as depression, poor sleep quality, accelerated cognitive decline, poor cardiovascular function, and impaired immunity um, at every stage of life. There's another study that was done by the American Cancer Society in 2019. They looked at about 600,000 adults, and what they found is that social isolation increases the risk of premature death from every cause. So if you live in isolation or in loneliness, your chances of dying younger is a lot greater than a person that is living in community. Another study, a study at uh, Newcastle University linked loneliness to a 30% increase in risk of stroke or the development of, co uh, of heart disease. A recent study at Florida State University showed that loneliness is associ associated to 40% increase in a person's risk of dementia. So they looked at people over the age of 50 years old and found that those who live in isolation or loneliness, 40% higher chance of of, or their risk uh, for dementia is greater. In 2015, University of California looked at um, people's white blood cells and they took two groups of people. One group uh, is people that are in community and then another group of people who say they suffer from loneliness or are isolated. And what they found is that those who, are, who feel lonely have less immunity um, and so, so their risk of uh, catching diseases or their body fighting against infections is a, is a lot uh, or worse, basically, um, and also suffer from greater inflammation than people who don't or don't feel lonely. And what they reckon is that loneliness or isolation basically triggers the fight or flight stress signal in your body. And so because of that fight or flight stress signal over a long period of time, that makes you literally sick physically sick. Now, my point to all of this is that I think for many of us, we would probably, you know, recognize that isolation can lead to, you know, struggles like depression or maybe even anxiety, you know, sicknesses of the mind, if you will. We usually put, you know, something like isolation in that bracket of um, uh, you know, psychology, and, you know, you will struggle because of that. But what the science is actually telling us is it not only causes sickness of the mind, but actually sickness of the body. At a physical level, you go, grow sick or ill, and you can die younger at a physical level if you isolate yourself. Now, what we're trying to say with this is that you were designed by God to be in community. You are not designed to be on your own. Now, in the same way, um, or maybe before I get to that, just an uh, interesting study I heard uh, in a talk not long ago where they also compared people who eat healthy but are isolated or lonely with people who eat unhealthy but are in community. And what they found is that the people who are lonely or isolated but eat healthy 
they've got a three times higher likelihood to die prematurely, to die at a younger age, than the people who are unhealthy in terms of their diet, but always people. And so what that is basically telling us is that you should stay behind and eat pancakes after church and not eat broccoli on your own, right? It's better to eat pancakes at church than what it is to eat broccoli on your own. That's what the science is saying. You see, pancakes, like the Villiers said, it's not a good idea on a cold day. It's survival. Maybe turn to the person next to you and just tell them, I don't want you to die young. So, so stay for pancakes. If you isolate yourself or you are a person that does life on your own, not only psychologically, but even physiologically or your body physically, it'll be detrimental for you, but so also spiritually. Can you imagine someone who isolates themselves from other brothers and sisters in Christ? Spiritually, you will also not grow. In fact, you will start dying if you isolate yourself from other believers. You see, nowhere in the New Testament do we find discipleship in a vacuum. You don't find a disciple who follows Jesus but has no contact with other people. You know the line that we sometimes hear in our culture of yes to Jesus but no to the church. You don't find that kind of discipleship in, in the New Testament. You say yes to Jesus, you are saying yes to His church, although it may be very broken just like you. But they go together. You see, discipleship is always in the presence. If you look at the New Testament, it was always in the presence of other people. Your discipleship will be in the presence of other people. God will use other people in your discipleship journey. And also, He will use your discipleship so that other people can benefit and be discipled through it. Now, I believe there are two spiritual practices. And a spiritual practice is like a, let's call it a relational habit that we have with God. So just like my wife and I, we've got a relational habit that Friday nights is date night. Right? So, so it's this practice, this discipline we put in life, but it's so that there can be life in terms of our relationship. And so in the same way, we've got these practices, like for instance, praying or reading scripture, getting up in the morning, doing that, doing church together. You've got these disciplines we put in place in our lives. They are like habits, but they help us to flourish in our relationship with God. There are two practices that are more important than any other practices, I believe, because they serve as containers for all the other practices. And they are the practice of being alone with God, firstly, and the second practice is the practice of not being alone. It's being alone with God, but also not being alone. That's where Jesus' life and ministry happened, right? So it's silence and solitude, but also it's the community of Christ. Because you see other practices like prayer, where does prayer happen? It's that time when it's just you and God. No cell phone, no connection to the world. It's me and God. But also prayer happens in church with brothers and sisters. That's where good prayer happens. The same with worship. You know those special times of worship when it's just you and God? But also the times of worship like when we have on a Sunday morning. Scripture. The word breaking open for you. 
God revealing himself to you personally. Silence and solitude, alone with God. But then also, in the community, in fellowship with other believers, understanding the word of God. And so they are like these containers. Now, just quickly think about those two. Imagine a disciple that never, ever spends alone time with God. Will that disciple grow? I think that disciple will struggle to grow if you never, ever spend alone time with God. No distractions, no cell phones, you and God. Now also imagine a disciple who never spends time with other disciples. That will be very limiting to your discipleship. No one to encourage you. No one to challenge you. At the end of this sermon, I've asked someone to help me with the sermon by sharing a testimony. That's how we're going to practically one another, one another this morning. We, as disciples, we encourage one another, but also challenge one another with our walk with Jesus. Now, as I say this, uh, I'm pretty sure all of you are saying, amen, pastor. We agree. Brother, it is the truth. It is not good for man to be alone. Or it is not good for disciple to be alone. Okay? So I think we all agree with that. But in this series, we are also discussing what it looks like practically. Now, here's the reality. If you start surrounding yourself in close proximity with other people, what will happen? It will get messy. Right? It will get... Any married couples in the house? What happened when you said yes at the altar and you moved into the same house, into close proximity with another human being, got messy, right? The ladies are saying, my house was never messy before, and now it is messy. <laughs> when you come close to other people, it will always get messy. The reason why it gets messy, and so what I'll be speaking about now, you can apply this not only to church community, but you can apply this even to other relationships in your life, whether it be family, uh, whether it be with um, you know, a group of friends, or whether it be with your spouse. They stay the same principle. So it gets messy because you get confronted. Firstly, because you get confronted with yourself, and secondly, because you get confronted with another human being. And although Christians are becoming like Christ. They are not like Christ yet. And so firstly, you get confronted with yourself. If you come into close proximity with another human being, what happens, it's, it's almost like other people serve as mirrors, right? You get confronted with your own shortcomings. You get confronted with the fact that not only do people irritate you, but that you are irritable. I know that makes sense. You are the one with the trigger, now, if you come closer to other people, what it asks of us is vulnerability, and it will always imply also accountability. And that's quite scary. We, we don't like that. If you're going to allow yourself to really become close to other people, it will mean that you're going to have to be vulnerable. You're going to have to open up your life at some level. And sometimes we prefer avoiding that, rather just to keep on showing our Instagram highlights to the world, just showing, you know, the good parts of us to the world. But if you're really going to be close to someone, and even in church, it's going to mean we're going to find out who you really are. And that's scary. Because other people will find out who I really am. 
And so in the 21st century, we, we much rather keep on pretending and showing a nice version of ourselves to the world than really allowing ourselves to be ourselves in front of other people where they find out who we are. And then secondly, if that starts happening, if you come into close proximity with people, so for instance, if you get married, or if you start doing church in the way that church is, I believe, designed to be done, then people will start having an opinion about your life. In the 21st century, we would much rather let people keep their opinions to themselves. But in the church, no, no, we, we call one another out. Not only do we encourage one another and come underneath one another, but we also ask one another tough questions. Like, my brother or my sister, I, I see that you are saying this, but you are doing this. Well, I understand that you want to, you know, just you know, quit your job because you're saying God said so, but I don't think that's wise. And, and we challenge one another, and we have opinions about one another, but we share them to one another. Uh, Paul actually writes in one of his letters, it's, it's quite a fascinating passage. Uh, we've got this thinking saying that the church shouldn't judge. Well, not according to Paul. Paul says, if someone is outside of the faith, don't judge them, because they don't subscribe to the same values than what we do. But if they are in the church, who are we not to judge them? And so what he's saying with that word judge, he's just saying, who are we not to correct one another and have an opinion about one another and address one another? And in the 21st century, individualistic world that we live in, we don't like that, right? Much rather just want to pretend and let people people keep their own opinions uh, to themselves. So we get confronted by ourselves. But then secondly, we get confronted by other people. So as I said, that uh, in the church, the people around you, they are becoming like Jesus, but they are not like Jesus yet. I mean, I, I like saying that I think church would be really easy if it were not for people, right? The church is actually just think about marriage. Don't you think marriage would be quite easy if it were not for that husband that you married to? <laughs> marriage would be a breeze if it weren't for my wife, you know? If it weren't for people, marriage, it's easy. What about family? Family would be really easy if it were not for people. You see, church is messy. But just because church can get messy, it doesn't mean that it's not good and part of God's plan in your life. Maybe it's that messiness that He wants to use to disciple you by making you more like Jesus. Marriage is messy and hard, but just because it's messy and hard doesn't mean it's not part of God's good, perfect plan for us. Family is tough. I heard someone saying, Emilius Alacadem of family. <laughs> family is tough. But just because family is hard, that doesn't mean it's not part of God's good plan to disciple you and make you more like Jesus. Let me tell you what is not messy. Acquaintances. A mere acquaintance is not messy. If you don't want messy, just keep people at a distance. Because then they won't see who you really are, and they're not going to have an opinion about how you do your life. 
but God calls us to more. So two weeks ago, I shared with you the five stages of community. This article I read, uh, which basically uh, argues that it's because of our idealism, our, this idealistic picture of what the perfect church should be, that we bring that into church, that we mess church up. And we get disappointed because we had an unrealistic expectation. The same is true of marriage. You think that it's going to be the perfect marriage. That will hurt your marriage if you've got idealism that you're bringing to the, uh, to the table. It's the same with, I think, any young man. The best thing you can do as a young man is to realize that your dad is not perfect. It's only the day when you realize my father is not perfect. You take him off the pedestal that you can truly start to love him for the first time for who he is, not for what your idea of your dad is. And the same thing with your spouse. It's only once you get to know them and there's conflict and you get to know the, not only the good parts but the bad parts also that you can start to love all of them, who they really are, not who they were just showing you. And the same thing in church community. It's only once we really get to know one another when there's a bit of conflict and you start realizing that this guy preaching or that guy leading the worship is not all that great. Then you see the bad part also, that you can start loving someone for who they are, not your idea of who they are. It's only once you realize that this church, the people sitting around you, are not perfect, that you can start loving them for who they really are, that you can love the church of God with its beauty and its brokenness. The same way that Christ loved us. Now, in these five stages of community, they speak about it that the first stage is the honeymoon phase. So if you join a new community group, and I do want to encourage you to join a new community group, or if you want to come and start a community group by facilitating one in your home, we'll show you, give you all the resources. It's real simple. You just need to have a willing heart and an open home. That's what you need to lead a community group. But if you join a group, what happens in the beginning, or even if you join this church, you might be in the honeymoon phase. We think this church is amazing. The theme song of the Lego movie is playing in your mind. Everything is awesome, right? But that's only because you don't know us yet. And then the second stage is apathy. That, that's when we, we sort of get used to the people around you. But then we get to stage three. This is when people start to get to know one another. This happens in church and also in all of your other relationships. And this is the rough patch. This is where conflict comes in. Now, sadly, this is when people leave. But those who stay are the ones who grow. If you go through the rough patch, you say, I'm not going to leave. You know, I said yesterday, I married you. We're going to figure this out. Then we get to the place of acceptance. You accept the good and the bad. And then you start loving that person for who they really are. And that's re-engagement. Then we can start loving one another. Now, here's the thing about that stage three, is sometimes we avoid that stage by not getting close enough. You know, so just being acquaintances with the people around, so there can't be any conflict. But if there's conflict, you shouldn't think there's something wrong. It might just mean you're doing something right. This is an opportunity for growth. Because, you see, no proximity, no conflict. If there's no conflict, it just means you're not close enough. Now, if you're in that stage three and things do get messy, so I'm saying this because if it's not already the case, there might come a time if you stick with us in church that you will be offended by someone in this church. It's bound to happen. 
It's probably already happened in other places where you are close to people. Now, when that happens, you've got one of two options. Option A is leave. Option B is grow. But if you leave, you run the risk of staying the same. If you don't, you've got the opportunity to change and become more like Jesus. So what is the right posture that we should approach all relationships in life, but also what is the right posture that we should approach church community? Remember in the series, we're speaking about one another. So how do we one another one another? Okay, what, what is the right posture to bring yourself to a church community? And it's the following. It comes from Colossians 3, um, from verse 12 to 14. Now, this is sort of just the main passage I quickly want to share with you. And it's, it's beautiful uh, because it's quite ironic. Um, it, it starts off by saying in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So let me just pause there. So speaking about the church, we read that and we think like, yes, the church must be this perfect thing because it's God's chosen people, holy and beloved. But then what does he tell this chosen, holy people? He tells them to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He could have just said, be nice. <laughs> he says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why would you need all of those things? He's preparing you. saying, so you're going to need compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience if you want to do life with these people sitting around you. <laughs> because this holy church that you're sitting in, you're going to need to clothe yourself with lots and lots of patience and love in order to love them. And then it goes on. I love it. Verse 13 it says, bear with each other. Bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so it's basically saying the accurate expectation you can have of church is that it will be messy. The accurate expectation that you can have of any relationship with any human being is that it will be messy. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, you clothe yourself with the love of Jesus and you get your heart ready, there will come a time when you're going to have to forgive someone. If you've never had to forgive someone, you just don't know them well enough. You haven't walked with them long enough. And so he's preparing us. That's the kind of attitude and posture we bring to one another. Imagine what a church would look like if we showed grace to one another. We showed the Jesus kind of love for one another. We don't put pressure on one another. But we give with patience. We really just love one another. Love and in truth. Ephesians 4 verse 2 says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's fault because of your love. You see, the whole New Testament, there's no church in the New Testament that was like perfect, right? I mean, all of the letters written in the New Testament are written because there was a problem in the church. Even the seven churches in, in Revelation that Jesus addresses through John, through that vision, all of them have got a problem. That's the reason for the letter. I'm thankful all of them had a problem. That's why we've got a New Testament today. And so this is a very, very, like if you're wondering about this, guy, this church, this is very much a New Testament kind of church because it's very broken because <laughs> of the people sitting here. 
But he's assuming this and saying, but, but love one another. You see, the beauty of church is not that it's this perfect place and everything in my life is imperfect. Church is this place where the environment is set for you to be able to love other people. Because it's messy, it gives you the opportunity to be more like Jesus. And we get to encourage one another to do that. Verse 32 in Ephesians 4 says, Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Now, just want to quickly mention something on forgiveness. And so I think I've made my main point, and my invitation to you is to take one step closer to church. That's, been, that's my one invitation in this four-week sermon. We're in week three now. Just take a step closer to church, whatever that might mean for you. Uh, it might mean to make Sundays a higher priority in your life. Say, so I'm not going to miss Sundays for no good reason. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be there. I want to be with the people of God because it's a, it's a discipline I want to put in place in my life. Uh, maybe you're at a, at, a, at a place where you've given it some thought and you, you want to join a ministry, whether, whether it be the crew or the worship team or a community group, or you're willing to start a community group because you already have friends in church and you want to hang out with them in a more intentional way weekly, not only bride, but in an intentional way, sit around the Word of God. Oh man, we'd love to help you to do that. And so whatever it might mean to you, just take a step closer to the community. Reason why? It's, it'll be good for you. It'll be good for your growth. I'm convinced of it. I'm giving my life to it. That's how convinced I am of it. Is that church is good for your discipleship to Jesus. We are a community. We're not a bunch of just spectators. Now, having said that, I want to end off uh, the sermon just by maybe one or two comments on forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a sermon for another day. I mean, that's a sermon series for another day, right? There's so much to be able to be, uh, that we can say about that. But in essence, forgiveness is letting someone go. That's the Greek word for forgiveness is actually to let someone go. But the thing about letting someone go is that we often want it to be a two-way street, right? And so I understand in church, if someone has done something wrong, it's good for us to address one another in love and forgive one another. But sometimes that's not possible. Maybe it's someone else outside the church that has hurt you. And when you want to forgive, it's not a two-way street. That person will not be able to pay you back with their sorrow or their remorse or anything like that. And we see the example of Jesus and Stephen in, in the book of Acts where Stephen was busy being stoned. And while he's busy being killed, he looks up to God and he prays for the forgiveness of those busy killing him. He doesn't wait for them to say they are sorry before he forgives them. Jesus. Jesus didn't wait until the Romans killed him and said, Ah, oh, I, I see, you know, you rose from the dead. I, I see you, the son of God now. Sorry, big mistake. My bad. Um, sorry for killing you. Can you forgive us? And then he's like, okay, okay, it's fine. I see you feel bad. I'll forgive you. No, no. While they were busy driving those nails through his hands, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's not a two-way street. Love is something we need to give away. Now, the thing about forgiveness, James chapter 5 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The thing about forgiveness, I believe, is also healing. Not only do we, when we confess our sins to one another, do we experience lightness in our hearts, but when you forgive someone, 
it heals not them, but you. That's why God wants you to forgive others. Someone once said is that forgiveness or unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. Drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. Forgiveness heals your heart first. Charles and Myrtle, maybe you can join me. So I've asked Charles and Myrtle, so instead of me preaching on forgiveness, I just felt that a testimony of how God has done this in their hearts and liberated them, made their hearts lighter, is going to be much more powerful, a better way to one another, one another this morning. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you, Abel. So I need to put a little bit of context into it. So I'm a financial planner, and in our trade, honesty and integrity is all we've got. And in Bloemfontein, with a small town, if you lose that, you lose your business. So four years ago, it was placed on my heart to make a move from a tied agency, and I won't name names, so relax. And we started to go through the process of making a move. And then when the time arrived, we started conversations with the management to tell them, listen, we're going to make a move, we're going to make a change. And up to that point, everything was calm and cool. It was approved, we can go on, go ahead. The day I left, all hell broke loose. And just to add to that, um, the guy that we actually had the discussions with us actually came into our house. It was actually one of our very, very close friends. So long story short, my integrity was questioned at every point. Letters were sent out to the clients, and it was broken. It was tough. I mean, I got to a point where if I saw him, I would kill him. Yeah. Okay? No police officers here. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I drove past, I would literally flip them a middle finger. Sorry, Abel. I know it's church. <laughs> And church, you, get, you should be honest. <laughs> you get to that point also where you start to pray and you ask God, what did I do? And at some stage you ask God, what did he do? Why did he put me in that situation? And then at some stage you start to pray and you ask God to really work with die And then you realize, but that's not how God operates. The spirit of the Lord is gentle. He wants you to be gentle. And if you can't be gentle then you need to ask him to be gentle. And that can only work if you ask him to God, please forgive me so that I can forgive that guy. So after driving past and stopped flipping the middle finger, I started speaking word and blessings and love and growth. And it wasn't a suddenly the sun came through the clouds and a dove came and rose up. It was over time we just found out that person got a promotion. He moved up. And then suddenly I stopped and I said, our business is growing. I'm not angry anymore. And with time, by forgiving and letting them go, I stopped committing self-infliction on myself and my family. And we attempted. We reached out. We asked, let's communicate nothing. So there was not a two-way street, as Abel mentioned. And over time, it just released, and we could feel that we are l- released from the bondage that we created ourselves. And I think what is so awesome also about this entire situation is that we prayed for this amount of business because we know we had to give that in or to get that in on a monthly basis to be secure in our income. 
but the Lord is so good and he's so faithful. The minute we release person X with business X, the Lord actually had a very weird sense of humor with this said because he then went and made an entire a business proposal for the enemy and they are busy writing half of their business over to us. <laughs> and that, I don't say it because, oh, also so great me. I say it because, thank you, Lord. Mm. You blessed him so that he can bless you. Sure. That's, that's it. Let's give him a hand. Thank you so much for sharing. What I love about that story, so Charles and Myrtle, um, I think they shared it in, in our community group. So we're together in an online community group that, group that uh, Flippy and Leandre lead. Um, and in our community group, there are often these testimonies. And I tell Karin afterwards, that's like raw Christianity. When you're so angry with someone, you just throw them the middle finger every time you pass their offices. To the place where you say, God, I pray for their blessing. Will you bless them? Release them, not only re release them, but I want what is good for them. That is God working in our hearts. We're going to take communion now. And as we take communion, I want to invite you. So we've got a table in the front uh, with some you know, juice and bread, and then as well as uh, there at the back. But go and take communion with someone else. So in the spirit of one another, um, in the series, we want one another, one another. Um, and just take a moment of quick confession the person sitting next to you. So that might be in the form of, listen, there's someone that I need to forgive. And you don't have to give the whole backstory. You can just maybe say, you know, there is someone. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not really ready to forgive, but you really want to. You can just say, listen, there's someone I have to forgive, but I'm not in the mood yet. So God help me. And just a time of, of, of confession to one another. And then you pray. And the reason why we connect this to communion is because in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus says this, when he gives his communion, um, uh, you know, that he connects to what we're doing here today, he says that this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sin. And so as we take communion, we are reminding ourselves that we are on the receiving end of the love of God and the, the forgiveness of God. And so also in a practical way, we want to be like Jesus and forgive and love others around us also. Let's all uh, stand together and then we're going to take communion. Let me quickly pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can be church together. And right now as we take communion, God, we're reminded of the fact that you have forgiven us. And that you want us to be like you, Jesus. God, would you come and show us if there's anyone in our lives that we need to forgive. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's have communion together. Thank you for tuning in. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website or follow us on social media at Doxadeo Bloemfontein North. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. See you next time.